just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, roles, and other cool stuff. Today, we're going to talk about what you say to your boss when you're going to be absent from work, how babies actually learn to speak like adults, and about being hexabubiated. Hi, Grammar Girl. This is Ellen from Newark, California. I have a question. Um, I am 60 years old, and I always use the phrase or heard the phrase calling in sick. If I couldn't make it to work or if someone couldn't make it to work, they would call in to say they were sick and couldn't come to work. But in recent years, like within the last 10 years, I have heard family members say um, they're calling out. And that sounded very strange to me. But even today in the um, Washington Post, there was an article, and sure enough, it used the phrase calling out sick because of uh, COVID uh, employees were ca calling out. So I just was curious about the phrase calling in sick and calling out sick. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the question, Ellen. I have always said call in sick. The way I think of it is that you call in to the office to say you'll be out sick. And if I call in and you take the call, you would tell everyone else that Mignon is going to be off sick or out sick today. Looking at how often these phrases appear in books that Google has scanned, I found that call in sick is dramatically more common than call out sick in both American and British English. In fact, call out sick it doesn't even seem to appear in books categorized by British English at all. And it's the same when you look at variations like called and calling. I found the same thing when I looked at the corpus of contemporary American English. Call in sick shows up about a hundred times more often than call out sick. Now, that database does have more casual sources than the Google Books database, like transcripts from movies and TV shows. But I wondered if maybe in even more casual use, like on Twitter, I'd find call out sick more often. And I did, but it was still 10 to 1 in favor of call-in sick. So no matter where I looked, call-in sick won big time in the big picture. But way back in 2009, I posted this question to my followers on social media and made a map of their responses because they did report something of a regional difference. And I'll post that map on the transcript of this segment at quickanddirtytips.com if you want to scrutinize your region and see if it fits what you hear. Here's what I found. 
First, the phrase call out sick seems to be most common in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, although it's heard a bit in other places too. Second, a very small number of people said they say they call off sick, which I had never heard before. It was too few to say anything definitive, but they seem to be scattered across the region from Illinois to Pennsylvania that linguists sometimes call the inland northern region. Call-off sick does show up in American English books in Google Books, but at a rate dramatically lower than even call-out sick. And finally, among the initial responses, a few people said they'd worked at different companies in the same city, and at one company, everyone said they call in sick, and at another company, everyone said they call out sick, which led me to suspect that corporate culture or traditions play a role along with the regional differences. And follow-up posts on the original map convinced me even more that corporate culture plays a role. I'm not sure whether regionalisms are behind the corporate culture aspect, though. For example, it could be that the human resources departments for the companies that foster a culture where people say they call out sick are just located in the regions where that wording is more common. Or that the departments are led by people who moved from a place where that wording is more common. I just can't tell. But these different sayings aren't right or wrong. It's like saying you stand online instead of you stand in line. They're idioms, and they may sound weird to those of us who don't live where one or the other is said, but they aren't wrong. Some idioms are just different in different parts of the country. And before we leave this topic, another thing that stood out to me when I was looking at the graphs from Google Books is that these phrases rarely appeared in any form before 1960. Did people not call in sick to work before then? Did they use other words for it? I don't know. I posted the question online, and although I don't have a definitive answer, people had some interesting ideas and stories that I'll share with you. First, a lot of people wondered whether it had to do with the availability of telephones, but I compared the adoption curve for the telephone to the frequency of people talking about calling in sick to work, and they didn't really match. Another person said that people used to talk more about being absent from work. It looks like that phrase started showing up in government documents around 1930, which makes it hard to tease out its real usage because those documents just swamp out everything else at Google Books. But when I limit the search to fiction, the phrase absent from work was never significant. What seems more likely to me is that before 1960, people either didn't have sick days because labor laws were weaker and therefore didn't take time off as much because they couldn't afford it, or that people actually didn't need to call in sick for the kinds of jobs they were more likely to have had back then. For example, Amy J. Schneider, an editor friend, says her family says it was a common experience until the mid to late 1970s that you were simply allowed a set number of days you could be absent. For example, at one job, the boss simply went around at the start of the shift, determined who was and wasn't there, and distributed tasks accordingly. I'm really curious about this rise in calling in sick since 1960, or put another way, the lack of calling in sick before 1960. So if you know, please tag me on social media and share your story. And this could also be an interesting thing to ask your parents or grandparents about the next time you talk to them. Justin and so good. 
thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Next, we'll look at how kids learn to speak like adults with a segment by Valerie Fredland. Anyone who's ever spent time with toddlers has noticed that kids do some very inventive things with speech, such as regularizing irregular verbs, like saying I goed or I swimmed, or misunderstanding that dog applies to all furry four-legged friends and not just the one at home. It can seem overwhelmingly difficult to imagine the process that underlies how children learn how to speak. And here's a wild story. The interest in how children acquire language goes back much farther than you might think. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus recorded what is probably the first child language experiment performed in antiquity, although the baby's welfare was certainly not the primary motivation. Instead, an Egyptian pharaoh set out to prove the superiority of his people by showing that the Egyptian language would emerge spontaneously as the primordial language from babies who were kept away from any type of language exposure. He commanded a local goat herder to take on the role of primary investigator, raising two babies in silence among his herds. While certainly not so great an experiment for the babies, it also turned out not so great for the pharaoh, because the first word was reportedly bakos, which was not an Egyptian word, but a Phrygian word meaning bread. The Phrygians were another powerful empire in what was at the time Western Anatolia. 
Although this ancient experiment wasn't about language acquisition per se, it's often discussed by linguists as support for one of the leading theories about how children learn language so quickly early in life, known as nativism or innateism. In other words, nativism is the idea that children's ability to speak emerges as a matter of biology rather than any learning like we need for other higher skills like reading and math. After all, how many people remember being introduced to the underlying grammatical rules of their language before they went to elementary school? And yet, most four-year-olds are very accomplished at talking in complete sentences. Even before they hit the one-year mark, babies have a remarkable ability to communicate with adults by babbling even just a few vowels and consonants. Ba, ma, and da may not sound like much, but they send a clear enough message like, get me my bottle, and ma, get over here. Looking at research on child language acquisition, these early pseudo-words do seem to mean much more than they might appear to on the surface. They represent not simply a name for objects in their vicinity, but attempts to converse about what they want those objects to be doing. Between 9 and 18 months, with only about a 50-word vocabulary and no understanding of the underlying syntactic structure of their language, babies have to be circumspect in picking out which word will best get what they need at the moment. This first stage of sentence production is known as the holophrastic or one-word stage and marks the beginning of the emergence of what linguists call a child's propensity for syntax, in other words, the rules that create sentences. While the exact age when babies start saying words can vary quite a bit, the stages of sentence acquisition they go through are pretty much the same despite being earlier or later for some. As they get toward 18 to 24 months, young toddlers are starting to put two-word mini-sentences together, saying things like, Mama, go, and no, Baba, meaning no bottle. This stage is referred to, not surprisingly, as the two-word stage, and seems to reflect that the child not only understands individual word meanings, but also how they can be used to communicate. In other words, toddlers are trying to tell someone something about their world. But since many of the sounds that adults use, like the TH sound and L and R, are too hard for younger children to say or even mentally have the concept of at early stages, their speech is often hard to understand for anyone but caregivers who've learned their kids' pattern of substitutions. At this two-word stage, children are still using very rudimentary speech, meant to just communicate what they need and want, rather than constructing the kind of rule-governed sentences they'll use as adults. They're still missing the complexities of language like prepositions, adverbial modifications, auxiliary verbs, articles, and morphological endings like adding an S for plurals or an ED for the past tense of verbs. At this very early stage, they don't seem to grasp yet the idea of how adults construct sentences. Rather, these early phrases are more along the lines of stringing words one after the other without any internal modification, such as a blue ball, or overarching organizations, such as I want the ball, the full subject-verb-object pattern most common to sentences in English. But even at such an early stage, children tend to follow the word order of their language. In other words, they generally prefer to say things like mama here, with the actor mama coming first and the location here coming second, 
or mama go with the actor first and the verb second, just like adults do. But as they move closer to age three, they start combining words and phrases of much greater length and complexity with phrases embedding in other phrases like, I know like mama yell doggy, a vital clue that suggests kids at that age have figured out the rules for merging words into adult-like sentence structures. Soon after young children begin to use longer sentences like this, other adult forms such as fully constructed yes-no questions and passive voice sentences follow. And by age six, children pretty much have the system down, well before they learn about social preferences like not ending sentences with prepositions or using whom instead of who. Those are the kind of standard grammar rules that kids typically learn in school. So what does research suggest most helps kids on their path to becoming linguistic experts? Interestingly, there's not much evidence that correcting children's early mistakes does much to help them master the forms later in life. In fact, kids don't seem to be able to imitate forms that they don't have a mental conception of yet. For instance, if they have not yet connected the fact that went is the past tense form of the verb go in English— they aren't able to understand when parents correct their use of goad. Nor is there evidence that using simplified language like baby talk or motherese is harmful. In fact, most evidence suggests that the slower, exaggerated speech style might help young children connect sounds, forms, and meanings and improve infants' language skills. Recent research also finds that caregivers are remarkably attuned to their infants and provide interactive clues, such as using more descriptive adjectives, the big blue ball versus just the ball, using simpler sentences, and shifting what they're looking at, for example, looking at the ball when they're talking about the ball, to help their children learn. Overall, the evidence from psychology and linguistic studies on how children learn language suggests that interacting with children in ways that involve talking, like when you ask questions, talk about things that catch your baby's attention, or interactively read with your child, is one of the best things you can do to help your child learn the language. Luckily, this is a pretty easy order to fill for most new parents and is definitely a lot easier than trying to explain the concept of a preposition or an adverb to a two-year-old. That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming book on all the speech habits we love to hate. She's also a language expert for Psychology Today, where she writes a monthly blog called Language in the Wild. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as FridlandValerie. Finally, I have a familect story from Eric. Hello, Grammar Girl. This is Eric from Massachusetts, and I have a familect for you. I did not know this was a familect until relatively recently. I saw a list of interesting words that we should use more often. I was surprised that this word wasn't on that list. But before responding, I checked my dictionary, and it wasn't there. That really surprised me. So I Googled it. Not a single hit. I was flabbergasted. I checked with my father, who used the word, and he admitted, yeah, I probably made that up. My father's well-educated, he's very well-read, and he's a wordsmith. He does the crossword daily. So as kids, we just assumed when he used the word, it was real. I never checked until recently. 
Growing up, if something happened which caused my sister or I to get upset, my father would say, there's no reason to get all hexabubiated. Hexabubiated is a perfect word. It has a feel of vexed and excited, which is exactly what it means. So I encourage your listeners, next time someone gets flustered or upset, to respond. There's no reason to get all hexabubiated. Thanks, Eric. That is a great word. Thanks for sharing your story. We include the number for the voicemail line in every weekly Grammar Girl newsletter. So if you want to call and you can never remember the number, sign up for the newsletter, which you can do at quickanddirtytips.com. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil, who is currently co-producing a young adult fiction podcast called Milky Way Underground. Our assistant manager is Emily Miller, and our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. That's all. Thanks for listening. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.